Mark and I recorded this interview about a month ago, before the outbreak of protests across the world in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot has changed since then. Conversations are different, as are the topics under discussion. This interview does not reflect those changes, at least not directly. Even so, a number of the topics in our conversation and in Mark's research more generally are relevant. In my hometown of Seattle, I watched these protests turn violent as the city toppled into rioting and chaos. And while individual acts of vandalism and looting are deplorable, there is no doubt that riots have played a crucial role in societal change over the course of history. When a riot spurs on regime change, we call it a revolution. As you'll hear in our conversation, the societal, economic, and psychological causes of revolutions has been an underlying motivation in many of Marx's great ideas. In particular are his threshold models of collective behavior, which compare the spread of rioting to, of all things, an epidemic. Still, these abstract concepts can seem very distant from the heart of the matter while it's unfolding around us. What I hope Mark's perspective and his research can help us keep in mind is that riots are not isolated events perpetrated solely by malicious individuals. They are reflections of the societal and economic systems in which they are embedded. It's easy enough to identify that connection between the actions of seemingly violent individuals and broken systems when it's occurring in someone else's country. Such dramatic actions may even appear a necessary impetus for change. But it can be harder to see the connection when it's happening in our own country and our own city. And while this does not mean that we should support or condone violence, it should be taken as a signal of a massive issue with the system. Healthy societies and economies don't produce riots no matter what the ideological motivation of their citizens might be. Throughout history, these events have often proved to be tipping points into a different way of doing things. That different way can either be much better or much worse. Let's make sure that we are doing everything we can to make sure ours is a case of the first one. Okay, I have two numbers for you right here. The first one is 56,420, and the second one is 42,595. And now what these numbers represent are the number one and number three most cited articles in all of the social sciences. And these articles both belong to my guest today, Mark Granovetter. Uh, he is one of the most influential sociologists of all time, and uh, he has a number of ideas which have really shaped the field that he's a part of. Um, probably the top three are um, the strength of weak ties, which was that first number that I read to you. And the, the basic idea there is that um, the value, especially the economic value of a social network, largely consists in... Not our strong ties, which are the people we know very well, but our weak ties, which are the people who are more like acquaintances. And the basic idea is that for people who are our strong ties, we occupy the same world. And therefore, when we talk to them, we don't necessarily learn something we wouldn't otherwise see for ourselves. We don't necessarily gain opportunities we wouldn't otherwise come across. Whereas when we hear something from a weak tie, they occupy a different social world. And so we hear about different opportunities, different ideas, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's the basic idea there. 
his uh, next, uh, uh, you know, the second number there is the is is based on the idea of embeddedness. And what's cool about this idea is that for, you know, pretty much the entire history of economics, economists conceived of markets as essentially an abstract phenomenon, right? And then Mark Granovetter comes along and says, well, look, um, a, a market is actually fundamentally, it exists between relationships between people. A, a, a market is fundamentally embedded in the social structure of society. And so if you want to really get to the center of what a market is, you have to uh, look, at, look at those social relationships. And so there's a lot there to unpack, very interesting. And the third uh, big idea that, that he's famous for is the idea of threshold models of collective behavior. And this is basically an idea that links uh, the individual psychology with group psychology. Um, and it's an idea about how uh, we influence one another and how we are influenced by other people and uh, the, the different ways in which that plays out in society. Now, if any of these ideas sound uh, especially familiar, uh, they actually have formed the basis of a lot of Malcolm Gladwell's work, especially his first book, The Tipping Point, around the year 2000. That was actually the central, if you go back and look at that book, the central academic insights in it are all from Mark Granovetter. Um, the, the strength of weak ties makes an appearance there, but especially threshold models of collective behavior. That literally is the tipping point. Um, and so, uh, yeah, needless to say, when uh, Mark Granovetter makes an appearance in uh, a piece of, uh, you know, sort of popular science work, it is on an extremely large scale. Uh, not only has he been mentioned in Gladwell's books, but also in his podcast, Revisionist History, which is, uh, you know, one of the most listened to podcasts on all of the web. And uh, when he's not doing that, he his official title is the Joan Butler Ford Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences, as well as Professor of Sociology at Stanford University. Um, so his, his latest book is Society and Economy. And as you'll hear, I promise to to read that book. I haven't I haven't read it yet, but I will, and I'm really looking forward to it because I believe the premise of it is that Mark Granovetter just goes in and solves all of the problems of society and economy. Uh, so if those if you are interested in either of those topics, society or economy, then uh, I bet this book will be uh, totally worth your while. So I'm really looking forward to getting getting into it myself. And uh, I must say, I really enjoyed our conversation together. Uh, I felt like we really uh, hit some cool stuff, and we got uh, we get to hear some insights behind where those famous ideas come from. And uh, I also just liked the connection that Mark and I had, and I thought it was a fun conversation. So I'm really looking forward to sharing it with everyone. And uh, without further ado, uh, I am Cody Commerce. And this episode of Cognitive Revolution features Mark Granovet. All right. So uh, the thing that I want to start with is where did you grow up? Oh, okay. I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which, as you may know, is a suburb of New York. It's directly across the Hudson River from Manhattan. Although we were barely aware of it, we were certainly aware of how close we were because as teenagers, we could just go to the corner and take the bus and end up in 
Port Authority at 40th Street and 8th Avenue or take the subway and end up in 14th Street and 6th Avenue and places like that. So I was very aware of proximity to the city, but the fact that there was a skyline, that there was a river, that was all kind of not part of our daily activity or thinking or understanding. And what did your parents do, if I might ask? My father was a salesman, an outdoor salesman, I think people called it. He was a representative for companies that made lingerie, and he traveled around from store to store with samples selling to them. And my mother went back to college when I was in high school uh, to finish college, which she had, she had started during the Depression, uh, and apparently... It was a teacher's college, and she had gone for two years at that time. She could have gotten her teacher's credential, but apparently there was not much demand for teachers, and so she dropped out. And then by the time she went back in the 1950s, you had to go for four years. So she she finished her college education while I was in high school. Um, I remember helping her with math problems and stuff like that. And she became first an elementary school teacher, then an elementary school principal. So that's what she did for the rest of the time that she was in the workforce. So was there anything of a, an academic bent then in your family? Because I know you, I, uh, you went to Princeton for undergraduate, right? And um, yeah, and so... Um, was that sort of an expected place to end up from your household, or did that come as a surprise to you and your parents? What did that look like? Well, you have to know who William Kane was. You probably don't. <clears throat> but William Kane was a man who um, owned the Yonkers Raceway. He made a lot of money with horses and, and tracks, uh, and he had two homes. He had a country home in Goshen, New York, which is a little town in upstate New York. Um, and then he also lived in Jersey City. And so when he came into tons of money uh, and I guess decided he wanted to do something more respectable with it, he endowed these scholarships at Princeton, which, which would go to either students in Goshen, New York, of whom there were probably half a dozen, or to students in Jersey City, which was at that time a pretty big town, um, probably bigger than it is now. And that meant that every year, four or five kids, whoever were the top of their high schools in Jersey City, um, were expected to go to Princeton on this scholarship, which I did. Uh, and so there was, in that sense, there was an expectation that if you were at the top of your class and you lived in Jersey City, you had a pretty good chance of going to Princeton and your expenses would pretty much all be covered by this Kane scholarship. And then how did you pick history as your, as your major of choice there? Ah, uh, yes. Well, the way I picked history as my major of choice was that in freshman year, which was a little bit of a shock to me when I first got there because it was a very different set of academic standards than I'd been used to, uh, it took me a little while to, to get back on track, um, but I did. And I had a world history class in freshman year. And I think the, th the reason that I ended up majoring in history is that in my first semester at Princeton, 
in that world history course, which went from the beginning of time to the modern period, uh, we, you came, you know, the way kids do in college, you, you fall behind in your reading. And I fell behind in my reading by about a thousand years. <laughs> right? So, uh, uh, seriously, I mean, that's the kind of textbook it was. It went from the beginning of time to, to the modern day, which was 1960s. And that meant that within a period of about a week to 10 days, I had to catch up on a thousand years of reading. And it turned out that that can be a really exhilarating experience because you, and it was a really wonderful textbook by this historian named R.R. R. Palmer, um, which is still in print in some you know, umpteenth edition um, with the co-author Palmer himself is long gone. And it was just so exciting to, to read through all those decades and centuries and see um, history unfolding and all these developments and the, the rise of science, the revolutions, the, 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 the rise of democratic societies. And it all just kind of was unfolding before me at this rapid clip and it was really exhilarating and I just knew I had to major in history. Uh, I, I would also add perhaps that I went to Princeton expecting to major in political science and I took three political science courses in my freshman year, all of which I thought were very good. And then I realized that there weren't any others that I wanted to take. And so those two things, one on the positive side, one on the negative side, um, made it pretty much overdetermined that I would major in history. And it was a wonderful history department at that time, still is, although with a different set of people. And so I was very happy as history major. So it sounds sort of like maybe what happened in that um, whirlwind tour of a thousand years of history, if I may venture a guess, is is that was there a part of it that, that you were wondering what were the trends, what were the sort of rules that dictated how this played out, sort of n noticing it in such quick succession like that? Was there was there an aspect of it where you're like, oh, well, what is what is causing this particular um, succession of events to take place? Well, I don't think I was quite there yet. Uh, I think that would be a plausible way to uh, depict what I was thinking, but I, I, it, it wasn't very clear in my own mind or very explicit in the way that you said it. I think it came on me more gradually as I became interested in German history and, and the, the rise of, of the Nazis and this puzzle of how this very civilized society could undergo this transformation into into one of the most uncivilized societies in, in human history. And I, I was looking, I, I did a junior paper on the idea, there was an idea out there that uh, it had to do with Germans being more authoritarian than other people and that, that it had to do with the way they were raised as children. And so I did a study of child raising um, in Germany uh, for this independent, we had to do a junior paper at Princeton, which was independent reading supervised by a faculty member. Uh, and so I read all this stuff about child raising, but I thought I'd better, uh, I didn't know what selection bias meant at that time, but I still had some sense that I'd better not just read about German child raising, but I'd better read about child raising in other countries. And I found that while child raising in Germany clearly was quite authoritarian, uh, 
it wasn't that different in that way than child raising in England or France or even the United States in the in the same period, and so it, it didn't. It, it became clear that that couldn't have been more than a very small part of the explanation. And I came to understand, even if still quite dimly at that time, that what mattered wasn't so much how people were raised, but what kind of institutions there would ex would exist that would enable people of a certain kind to come to power, be get in powerful positions, be able to do the things to other people that, that the Nazis did, the stormtroopers and so on. Uh, and so that kind of pushed me away from this micro-level psychological history um, into the study of, into the thinking about larger patterns uh, in politics and institutional analysis. Uh, and, and that kind of shaped my thinking. I did my senior thesis, it was a required, still is a required senior thesis at Princeton, and I did it on the rise of the German youth movement, not the Hitler youth, which came later, but there was a earlier youth movement in Germany from 1896 to 1933 when it was closed out by the Nazis and incorporated into the Hitler Youth, which before that time most people in the youth movement had, had despised and thought was a bunch of, of thugs, which is, was not too far from being true. Um, and so it was very interesting for me to work on that, and I, I think I learned a lot from that, but the, the basic facts um, was that I came to understand, uh, I'm getting around to the question that you asked me. Uh, it's a little bit roundabout, but then my, my journey to it was a little bit roundabout. Um, at some point I decided that I would be an academic because I really loved being in college. And I, I, I can't reconstruct my exact thought process, but I think it went something like, is there a scheme I could develop that would enable me to stay in college a lot longer, like forever? Uh, and that scheme is to become an academic. And then I thought about, that meant you had to go to graduate school. And I thought about going to graduate school in history, which was what I had studied. I had barely studied any sociology. I, had, I took in my senior year one sociology class, and that was because I was applying to graduate school in sociology, I thought I should have at least one sociology class on my record. Um, and I wished I hadn't because it wasn't a very good class. In fact, it was a terrible class, but I won't name names. Anyway, um, the reason I decided not to apply to graduate school in history was that if I had done that, then I would have to become an historian of 18th century France or 19th century Russia. I would have to pick a time and a place because that's how you became a graduate student in history. And I realized that the thing that was really interesting to me, of course it was very interesting, why was there a French Revolution? And why was there a Russian Revolution? Why was there a Nazi Revolution? All, all very fascinating questions. But I realized that the thing I really wanted to understand was why are there revolutions? as a general question. And the more I came to realize that that was the kind of thing I wanted to know about, it became clear to me as a result of my reading, certainly not the result of that class I took, that that was the kind of question that you could ask if you were in a discipline like sociology, which was asked these very general questions that weren't bound by time and place. So one thing I'm interested in here is that, so you started off with this rather humanistic perspective um, from the discipline of history. 
And over time, if one sort of charts your course, you get closer and closer to these sort of core economic questions, which, you know, uh, certainly there's a precedent for historic, uh, approaching them from a historical perspective, but they're oftentimes approached in these highly quantitative ways. And so I'm wondering how your sort of humanistic bent and training uh, sort of took shape around, um, you know, these economic questions that uh, you, you started to approach as your, as your ideas and your career developed. Well, I think there are, you've got a couple of different questions there that have been put together that maybe I need to disentangle a little bit. Uh, I think that everything I've ever done uh, has been in a humanistic mode in the sense that I think that I've always tried to take into account uh, human agency, um, how people, what, what people are trying to do, how they're trying to do it, uh, what kind of influences there are on them as they try to figure out what they're doing. Uh, th I did have a period, and you can see it in that 1978 Threshold Models paper, when I imagined that rational choice was a good way to think about the world. And that was partly a reaction against the sociology of that period, which was really given over to these tautological statements about everyone was playing out a set of values that uh, dominated societies. This was Talcott Parsons' vision, and he was the, the big guy at Harvard when I was a graduate student. And so reacting against that, I came to think that it makes more sense to try to figure out what people have got on their minds and what they're trying to do. And so that sounded like rational choice. And <clears throat> that paper, the 1978 paper on threshold models, is actually cast in terms of people making that the threshold are determined by costs and benefits. And not long after that, I realized that it was really the wrong way to cast that and that there was no reason why you had to talk that way at all. The only thing you had to know was where these thresholds came, what these thresholds were, and maybe where they came from. Um, but there are all kinds of things that could affect people's thresholds, some of which had to do with cost and benefits, some of which certainly did not. And so I, I became less and less enamored of rational choice as a way of thinking about the world uh, over the years until the, if you, I don't know if you've had a chance to read my 2017 book, but if you do, you'll see that a lot of it is given over to refuting ideas that you can explain much of what goes on in the social world with rational choice conceptions. Uh, let's see, there was something else you asked me about mathematical approaches. Yeah, maybe the second um, part of the question that you were trying to disentangle was that, um, yeah, I guess maybe the influence of mathematics grew um, more tangible in your work over time. So was that, was that something you drew closer to or like, what? Well, yeah, what was the sort of dialectic between the, the humanistic impetus for what you're doing and then sort of wrapping it around a more quantitative framework? Well, I never saw much conflict between the two. I think if you think about it clearly that there's, there's not any conflict between doing things quantitatively and, and having a humanistic bent. Um, and I was never in a department. There, there have been departments in sociology. You probably don't know 
all of this uh, sociology of sociology and the reason why you should, but there, there are departments like Berkeley Sociology, for example, which is one of the top departments, where there's always been a conflict between people who did quantitative work and people who did qualitative work. Uh, happily, I was never in a department like that. I never saw that conflict. I was trained somewhat as, as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student in mathematics. And I always thought I was, I kind of love mathematics as an abstract discipline. Uh, and I would say that one of the things that I learned, and it, I think it very much informs the threshold paper, even though it's not explicit there yet, uh, is I learned in mostly in taking math classes in graduate school, I think is where I picked this up. The difference between linear and nonlinear models uh, and functions, and the way that translates into social science is that there's an undue influence of linear models in sociology. I'm not sure how it works out in cognitive psychology, but there are well, obviously, linear regression, approximations to linearity, this idea. And, and the way I translated that qualitatively was into the assertion or assumption that it was just ran through so much sociology in, in the time that I was um, getting my degree and my first 10 or 15 years, I, I could see this, that there was this idea that large outcomes must have large causes, and small causes couldn't have large consequences. In other words, linearity, you know, the, the, the size of outcomes had to be proportional to the, to the size of causes. That's what a linear model is telling you. And I was pretty sure from all kinds of things I knew um, that that was not, not right, that didn't make sense. And that there are all sorts of instances where very small changes led to enormous consequences. I, I, I saw that in my historical studies, even though I don't think I could have exactly articulated it that way, but, but there are so many, if you really study history carefully, if you study the French Revolution, you see that there are situations where the small decisions people made just kept accumulating and, and concatenating into larger and larger consequences. And so you can sort of see that in the threshold models. And I think what set me off on the threshold models was when Tom Schelling, the economist, came out with his models of residential segregation in 1971. Uh, there was this paper of his in the Journal of Mathematical Sociology on residential segregation, where he showed very brilliantly, not empirically, it was a model, but he showed that uh, if you took a certain set of assumptions, you could show that, um, and, and you talked about two races distributing themselves residentially, that even very small preferences for being with your own group could, uh, through the process of, of um, aggregation over time, uh, lead to segregation far more profound than any group wanted. And it had to do with, with this process of aggregation and how it played itself out. Now, this was a nonlinearity of massive consequences, uh, that, that small differences in preferences for integration or segregation 
led to this massive level of segregation. And he showed in his models uh, how this could happen. And that was really fascinating for me for this reason that I said, I already had this idea that it's very important to figure out how small, small causes might have large consequences. And so that eventually led me to think about more general, uh, more general formulation of this. And I, I framed it in terms of the sociological literature on collective behavior, as you've seen. Um, and you've read that 78 paper, I'm sure. So you know that the literature at the time was talking about how in these situations where people engage in some kind of collective action, uh, the dominant interpretation was that something happened to change their, their norms, their ideas about what people should do. And I just thought that was probably wrong. I thought there was a, a bunch of studies and evidence. The, the study of juvenile delinquency that I talked about uh, in the paper. And I wanted to spell out, uh, in, in part inspired by Schelling and using the kind of ideas that he had, how you could make general arguments about that to show that very small differences in people's inclinations could lead to massive differences in outcomes. And so that was kind of the thing I was trying to do, to show that um, when big things happened, there was a riot or there was something that happened that was unexpected, the kind of collective behavior that people used to thought think was an example of mass irrationality, that it didn't, you didn't need to assume that people changed their values or changed their preferences or changed anything about how they thought about the world. All you had to assume was that this process unfolded and people's preferences would be triggered by what other people did and then that would trigger more people and that eventually this would aggregate into an outcome that might be quite different from one that was consistent with just a very small change in those underlying preferences. And so that's what's in that paper, and that's where, where that's where the inspiration for it came from. So I want to talk a little bit about where some of those ideas came from, in terms of your um, work getting a job. And um, so the basic, you know, sort of, so it's it's a it's a qualitative study, and it the, the basic insight there is that when you looked at a lot of people how they described where they got their job from. It was from the collection of um, acquaintances that they had. And that was the sort of uh, link between uh, where they were previously and where they, they were now in terms of their, their job. And so um, the first thing I'm curious about with that book is how did that study, and it was, I believe it started sort of with your dissertation originally before it was the book how did that sort of take shape into the ideas that you just described well it's it's a different stream of of thought but there's there's some relationships so i think closely related to the book and to the studies from my dissertation on how people found jobs of course the reason i did a dissertation on how people people found jobs was that I was interested in doing a study which would show how important social networks were. Because I was in a group and I thought myself that social networks are very important. It was something I really carried over from my undergraduate studies in history where I, I 
knew that social networks mattered a lot, even though I didn't know that they were called something. Uh, I just knew of instances in history where social networks really mediated a lot of the relationships between very small-scale stuff and very large-scale stuff. Um, and when I was working on this question of how people found jobs, so I, so I chose that subject because I thought it was probably going to be a way to show how social networks were important to people. And it, it, it happens that around the same time I was working on this paper that came to be called as the strength of weak ties. And I had been accumulating a, a bunch of little bits of evidence for this paradox that people's weak ties were actually strong in the sense that, that they unexpectedly in terms of social theory. And so here again, this is a kind of a nonlinearity playing out, although I didn't try to develop this mathematically I, I very self-consciously in the, have you read this paper, The Strength of Weak Ties by any chance? Yeah. And I think uh, I, I, when I segued into the question on getting a job, I, um, uh, as you noted there, there was a discontinuity and it was because I, 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 I sort of uh, mixed up my strength of weak ties with my uh, threshold models of behavior. Uh, so that was that was the connection I was trying to make was between those ideas and not necessarily with the threshold models. So that, that was my my bad right there. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't matter. They're all um, they're all related, um, <clears throat> although not there's not a direct line from the strength of weak ties to the right. So I guess that was the direct line that I was trying to allude to. I think the direct line, or rather the line, if there's a line, it has to do with both of them having to do with paradoxes and nonlinearities, um, and, and that that was kind of the way I was thinking about the world. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Where do you, where do you think that um, general principle sort of came from? What drew you to that particular phenomenon in the world? Uh, you know, I'm not sure about that. Um, I suspect it had to do with this, my study in graduate school of mathematics where I learned about linear and nonlinear transformations. And, and I, I could see that that was about um, whether outcomes were, were proportional to inputs or, or whether they could be quite different. You, know, you could have very small inputs and leading to very big outputs. And that's one of the things you learn when you learn about nonlinear transformations. And, you know, I happened to have a really amazing math course when I was in graduate school, which spelled all this out in some detail, in much more sophisticated detail than the usual kind of intermediate calculus course. It was all taught through linear algebra and, and vector spaces and so on. Um, and, and that was fascinating to me. I... And, and I think it affected the way I thought about things, although I think I was already predisposed to think that way from my studies in history, when I could see how small small uh, causes would lead to, to big outcomes, but I didn't connect that to any kind of mathematical formulation at that time. So I think it all kind of came together. <clears throat> and then when I was in graduate school, um, I became interested in a collection of findings that led me to this idea that weak ties uh, were quite important, that they they had uh, this ability to connect people to much larger networks than their their proximal networks, the, their close friendship groups. And 
so all those things are coming together. We have about four or five different sources. And if you read the strength of weak ties, you'll see that I've got four or five different kinds of data there. Uh, and I think that maybe the thing that, but the thing that really pushed me over the edge and, and forced me to write about this, I mean, I can, if you want me to go back to, to my um, advanced placement chemistry class, I can tell you, because this always stayed in my mind, that have you ever studied chemistry? Uh, no. Okay. Well, then this may not resonate, but there's something, uh, there's a kind of, there are ionic bonds and there are covalent bonds, those two kinds of chemical bonds. And then there's a kind of bond called a hydrogen bond, which is much, much weaker than the usual bonds that hold molecules together. And those hydrogen bonds, because, precisely because they're weak, uh, hold together enormous molecules like, like water, for example. You couldn't have it without hydrogen bonding. So, so there was that in the back of my head. And, you know, I have this, um, for better or for worse, I, I have trouble forgetting anything. And so I, like I remember my telephone numbers when I was a child and stuff like that. So I remembered about hydrogen bonding. And so this is another bit of, 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 um, of an idea that was floating around. And then when I started working on this study of how people found jobs, <clears throat> and I had this, I thought, very clever diagram that I would show. So I, I, I went out to interview people. I had to find my own, I, you know, of course, like anybody else, I would I try to find data that had already been collected, but there was no data on this subject. So I had to go out and actually find people to interview who had recently changed jobs and find out as much as I could about how they'd done it. And I had this, I thought, very clever diagram where I, I, I had five circles on a piece of paper and I asked people to tell me the initials of the five best friends. And, and then I, I uh, had them connect them, the ones that knew each other. And then I found out how people found jobs. And when people would tell me that they found a job um, through someone they knew, I would ask whether it was one of these people on the, on the piece of paper. It never was. It was never any of those people. Uh, it was um, always the case that uh, it, it was an acquaintance. And people would actually correct me. People would say, I would say, oh, so you found your job through a friend. And people would correct me and say, no, no, it was an acquaintance, only an acquaintance. And so there was all this other stuff about weak ties floating around in my head. And here was this, here are these corrections I was getting. You know, if you, if you're doing a study, we're actually talking to people and asking them open-ended questions, then uh, it helps if you actually listen to what they say. And, and I have I heard this enough times that I realized that this clever exercise that I devised on this piece of paper was useless because people weren't finding jobs through their close friends. And then I connected that to these other bits of information I had about um, weak ties, and I, and I realized that there was a kind of a big, a big theme here, uh, a really interesting thing that I could write about. And I, around the same time I was um, doing my dissertation interviews or finishing my dissertation interviews and starting to write that up, I drafted the first draft of the Strength of Weak Ties paper which I sent off to the American Sociological Review, which sent it out to two reviewers who absolutely hated it. Um, and so the first version was rejected. 
but I I was discouraged, but I didn't give up, and, and eventually I came back to it. So, but there was another kind of paradoxical event or, or, or pattern that people were, were getting this information from people whose very existence they'd almost forgotten. Um, people they'd worked with years and years ago and they just happened to run into for one reason or another. And those people were now in networks that were quite different from the ones they were in. And so they had information they would never get any other way. And so this was really interesting. And so that became part of the dissertation. It's in getting a job and it became part of that that paper, which was finally accepted by a journal. And as you may know, is now the most cited paper in sociology. And you never know what's going to happen. But So I want to talk about that fact a little bit, that the most cited paper in sociology was rejected on first glance. And I believe it, was, it, was, it wasn't for another four years until it was published. So what, looking back on that, well, I mean that that fact is totally insane. So what? What I mean, what do you make of of, of that? Well, I can tell you first of all that <clears throat> the original title of the paper was not the strength of weak ties. It was alienation reconsidered, and the subtitle was the strength of weak ties. Uh, and the reason it was called alienation reconsidered is that I was reacting to a long line of urban scholars scholars of, of urban life, who argued that people who lived in big cities were alienated, and the reason they're alienated is because they didn't have strong ties, they only had weak ties, and having all these weak ties was an alienating, alienating experience. So, I mean, by the time I wrote, there were lots of community studies that showed that people in, in urban areas had actually did have lots of strong ties. And so they probably weren't alienated. But I also wanted to show, I, I was getting, the, I had the feeling from all the things I knew about how valuable weak ties were, that it was not an alienating experience to have those ties. On the contrary, it connected you to resources that were really critical. And so I framed the first version of that paper as a refutation of this alienation idea. Uh, and as you probably know, when you send a paper to a journal, the editors don't really read it. They read the title, maybe they read the abstract, and then they send it out to people based on that. And in this case, they sent it out to, I would guess, I never found out who the reviewers were, but I would guess that they were either European or European-oriented alienation theorists who thought that the way you should talk about alienation was the way Marx talked about alienation. They could see that that wasn't the way I had talked about it. Uh, and it didn't occur to them that there was another way you could talk about it that was equally valid. And so they, they really hated it. And so when I got these crushing reviews back, which, by the way, I have saved, and I circulate to my graduate students so they see that even papers that eventually people think are pretty good might get savaged on the first, first round, um, and when I finally resubmitted it, I stripped all that alienation stuff out of there and out of the title, out of the content of the paper, and just submitted it as a straight argument about social networks. And in that form, it got, it got a much better reception and was published in 1973. It, was, it took four years because I took a while before I felt up to really revising it and putting it back out there. 
Well, I'm sure glad you did. Um, so, okay, here's a question. Uh, do you think it's possible still to come up with such a foundational idea today? I mean, or have all the big ideas been sort of sketched out now it's just a project of maybe shading them in? Like, what do you, do you think that a paper like The Strength of Weak Ties, uh, such a big idea, do you think, I mean, does that stuff still come out today? I don't think you can, if, to answer that question, you'd have to know what the, what the forthcoming foundational ideas are going to be. And of course, if you knew that, then they wouldn't be foundational or, or exciting to anybody. Uh, I don't see why there can't be more foundational ideas because there's an awful lot we don't understand. You know, there's a huge amount of attention paid to big data uh, and machine learning and, and all this stuff, you know, you know, all the stuff that's out there, the, uh, all this uh, linguistic analysis and computational linguistics and so on. And, you know, that's all very interesting, but there, it, it's kind of short on ideas. And so I'm sure that there are still lots of big ideas yet to be discovered. Uh, if I knew what they were, I would have already discovered them. So they, they wouldn't be out there to, still to be discovered. I think there are always going to be foundational ideas coming, but we never know when they're going to come or what they're going to be. Well, I guess uh, it is my job to work on that. Since you already contributed your foundational ideas, I'll have to I'll have to work on my own. Well, I'm trying to get I'm trying to develop more. Right? No, I you don't seem to have had a, a shortage of them. I'm not sure how many we are granted in a lifetime, but you know, it, I think I'm always trying. So that's actually something I want to ask about. Is that there's this idea that I really love um, that was sort of maybe brought to popularity in an Isaiah Berlin essay. And it's the the fox and the hedgehog, and the idea is that basically there's you know two different uh, like you can categorize thinkers on this spectrum of foxes to hedgehogs, and now the foxes are the people who know um, uh, lots of little things, and the hedgehog with its you know singular defense knows one big thing, and so I'm wondering just sort of interpreting your own self, do you see yourself as 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 more of a fox or a hedgehog? Uh, I think I see myself being somewhere in between. Uh, I, I certainly don't think there's one, any one big thing that I'm interested in, but I think, and I certainly know a lot of little things. Some of them are quite trivial, like my childhood phone numbers, but, you know, I know all sorts of little things. Um, but those little things don't add up to anything unless you try to, unless you can somehow convert them into something bigger. So I, I think that that's a false dichotomy. I, I mean, I know that that paper is very influential paper. He's, he was a very fascinating thinker, of course. But I, I can't put myself in either of those camps. I'm sorry. I think, uh, you mean, uh, so you, uh, you would, in a sense, you kind of are the exception that proves the rule um, because you have hedgehog level or uh, uh fox hedgehog level ideas at the sort of span of the fox where um you can go through and sort of find these areas of really strong gravitational pull whether it's the the threshold models or uh the strength of weak ties and that sort of stuff and yeah you've just you've just had several lifetimes worth of um hedgehog uh, ideas, in, in, in my opinion, I think that's uh, it's it's pretty unique. Uh, so maybe yeah, you are not categorizable in that uh, in that particular spectrum. Well, I, I, I would resist it. 
by the way, I'd say that my 1985 paper on embeddedness is also in that category, right. or at least right, of course. as people, insofar as people think it is, I mean, that's what makes it so. Uh, I have, and I never know, and it's not something that I can determine when a paper of mine is going to somehow take on this iconic status, because I have other papers that I think were just as good as these that sank like a stone. And it's, you know, you can't do it yourself. It's how the paper is received. And in the, in the case of those papers, I knew almost immediately, well, especially the strength of weak ties and the embeddedness paper. I, I think the, the threshold models paper has caught on more gradually. So that's not quite the same, but those other two papers, I immediately got all this feedback from people who thought it was just what they wanted to read and so exciting and so on. And as I say, other papers I thought were just as good were just have, you know, like a hundred citations or something instead of 55,000 citations, which is about what the Strength of Weak Ties has now. And, and it's really, you have no control over this. It's out of your hands. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience with Malcolm Gladwell. So your work was crucial to Gladwell's first book, The Tipping Point. Um, and, he, you know, he obviously draws uh, on a wide range of academic work, but I'd say yours is perhaps the most central, um, both uh, in terms of the threshold models, which is uh, the much vaunted tipping point, and um, the strength of weak ties, because he looks at... Um, I think in the book he calls them connectors, uh, which are people with a huge network of, of, of weak ties. That's one of the three kinds of um, you know tipping point makers he, he looks at there. So I guess, yeah, can you say maybe what was your, what was your relationship with, with him like? What did, what did that look like when, when he first approached you and that, that started to develop? Well, I think the, the history of the tipping point is that... Um, there was a phone call from him, and at that time I didn't know who he was, and I guess I didn't return it in time. So I, and he had to get, he had to finish the manuscript. So I never did talk to him about it, uh, and yet I thought he did. You know, this is his talent. He did probably a better job of expositing my ideas than I did myself. Certainly, he made them accessible to a much wider audience. Um, probably if I talked to him, I would have got it, got it jumbled up in his head. But uh, because I didn't, he was uh, able to get it exactly right, I thought. I thought he really had a good sense of what I was doing and what he could do with it. And so I was very pleased with that. Um, and then later, as you probably know, he made use of my threshold models in a, there's a New Yorker paper of his on school shootings. Do you know this one? Yeah, I'm familiar with uh, that uh, article of his. Yes, uh, where he used my threshold models, and I, I have to say I would not have thought of using them for that purpose, although it makes perfect sense. But I didn't think that there was actually a practical way to apply it to school shootings. I still don't, even though I think that what he said makes perfect sense. I just don't think it will help us understand what's going on with school shootings or do anything to make them less likely, unfortunately. Um, and then there's this, you know, this podcast on um, 
Right. It's the uh, the free throw one, uh, right, where he uses threshold models to explain uh, essentially why people don't shoot free throws underhanded in the NBA. Right. Which I, when I was 13, as you may remember from the podcast, I did a lot of that underhand free throwing and I, I hit about 90 percent. So um, I didn't realize at the time he was interviewing me that he was going to use that in the podcast. <laughs> so I was kind of surprised to hear that uh, when it came out. But, you know, probably the only time I'll ever be celebrated in a podcast for my athletic prowess. So I, I'm, I was perfectly happy to go with it. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, uh have you have you sort of continued a correspondence with him throughout the years? It sounds like uh, I, I mean I, I imagine there's a lot of people who would be less thrilled about someone else. I mean I guess do you feel like he got credit for your ideas in the popular consciousness, right? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that he's always very careful to to credit me. Yeah, uh, and usually in a very generous way, uh, and. Certainly in the podcast, I think he's he's very generous. He says very nice things about me. I think he calls you a superstar on pretty much every occasion. That he, yeah, he, something he, like that, world famous that, or yeah. some, 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 some location like that. And so, you know, I, I can't complain about someone talking about me that way, whether I think it makes sense or not. Well, I'm sure you could find a way to complain if you were so inclined. I guess somebody might, but, you know, he's a nice man and he's very smart and I don't always agree with everything he says and everything he writes, but I think on the occasions when he's making use of my work, I think he makes use of it appropriately and it makes perfect sense in terms of what he's doing. Um, and I think there probably are more people in the world who know about my work because he wrote about it than because I wrote about it. So that doesn't seem to me like something I can complain very much about. You know, I can actually kind of see you guys being sympathetic to one another's projects, even though you come at it from different angles. Obviously, you uh, academic, much more, uh, you know, technical writing for a specialist audience than him doing, uh, you know, obviously general audience work. But the, the basic idea being that, look, the goal of the project that we're trying to do here is to connect these broad ideas to explain specific instances, right? And um, that is uh, sort of what you were talking about at the beginning when you're like, okay, you know, here are interesting questions about, well, why did the Russian Revolution happen? Why did the French Revolution happen? Uh, but, and we want, but, uh, but the really big thing here is how, what, how, why do revolutions happen? But it's the interplay between the, the specific and the general, which is of interest. And I think both of you um, and uh, a lot of my you know, favorite thinkers in general their work has consisted in finding some interplay between those things, not being wholly uh, theoretical, but also uh, not being divorced from actual instances of, of, of realities uh, that are lived by real humans that, that, that you know, are, are academically interesting. Right. I'm, I'm quite sympathetic. I could never do what he does because I would be horrified at the idea of trying to cover so many different disciplines and so many different, make so many different arguments. But of course, he's not writing for academic journals where it's going to be, um, it's going to go out and, and, and be, go through a refereeing process and, and be peer reviewed and so on. He has to have to worry about getting every detail right. Uh, he's, he's a, um, a journalist and he's yeah. a great journalist and he's, 
he brings a lot of these ideas to to a general public in ways that I wouldn't try to do. And he's very good at it. I, I don't think he's always right, but but so on. You know? Well, uh, but you also don't think that other academics are always right, even though they are much more trained in their area of expertise. Well, I think that there are other academics who are not always right, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who they are. Right, um, but I, I I think it's delightful that you have that attitude of essentially collaboration toward his work, uh, and you know I I haven't spoken to him directly, but you kind of contrast this with the sort of K. Anders Ericsson uh, thing for Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. So, I mean, uh, the 10,000-hour rule is out of all of Gladwell's work, the thing that people most assign to him. Whereas, like, it's it's down to the point that if you look at a Malcolm Gladwell tweet, there is a about 98.7% probability that someone commented on that tweet, uh, looks like someone spent their 10,000 hours being a dumbass or something to that effect. Um, but, it, but people are really fascinated by this idea. And to some extent, it was, um, you know, sort of formulated by uh, Professor Erickson. And um, even though Gladwell had the same attribution processing, this is the person who came up with it, it got sort of assigned to him in the public uh, conscious. And I, I guess it didn't really happen to you in the same way. But it's also nice that, um, you know, you're able to view it with such magnanimous sort of perspective. Oh, I think he's, he's a great publicist for me, you know, and uh, it's not always in ways that I, I'm, that, that I enjoy, like I, I get, periodically I get messages from people in, who are in police departments trying to figure out how to stop these shootings and asking for my advice and I really don't know what to tell them. Oh, that's funny. Well, so, so, I wish I could help them, and, you know, but I, I... Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? And, and um, so there's there's one uh, another thing that I want to ask you about. Um, maybe returning to your setting Gladwell aside and returning to your work is that um, so one thing that strikes me about uh, your threshold model work in particular, but to some extent all of your work, is that it exists at the junction between individual and group behavior, basically connecting, you know, you can think of it a lot of ways, but individual preferences and group norms, stuff like that. And usually those two levels are, are sort of divorced because it's tough to analyze both of them simultaneously. So I guess as a someone whose training is, is in psychology, but is a, uh, a, a deep fascination with sociologists verging on an obsession when it comes to anthropologists, what do you think that us psychologists, more individual level people, can learn most from sociologists and people who have a, 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 a maybe a stronger appreciation for group dynamics? Well, I think that, and of course, psychologists do so many different kinds of studies. Of course. But I think that a lot of psychologists, especially people who do neuropsychology um, and have got keep running people under fMRI machines and giving them moral dilemmas and so on. Um, I think it's very interesting work, but I think they don't understand or they don't care that the kinds of moral decisions that they're interested in are made in much more complicated social contexts where people are getting all kinds of cues from other people uh, and are evaluating the situation in terms of the, the, the social framework that they're operating in. I don't know if 
if they want to know that, I, I don't, it, it's not something that they can easily evaluate using the methods they use. Although I will say there is a kind of, uh, there are some sociologists who've started to do neural work and uh, trying to get people's, um, trying to see what, what parts of the brain are activated when people are shown information about people they know who are in the network. So they're trying to try to see what the, some of the um, neurophysiological correlates of, of social networks are. So I think there's some room for collaboration there. And, and I, I think it's very difficult because we don't talk to each other very much. Of course, there are social psychologists, but they're mostly not doing that kind of physiological work. But I think that even when you get down to that level of neurophysiology, I think there's plenty of room for collaboration and cooperation if people at both ends of this would ever talk to each other, but we usually don't. Yeah, no, I, I largely uh, agree with that. I think that when you take human behavior out of its milieu, what you are looking at becomes something that is, is really different than what is actual human behavior, which always takes place in a context. It's never fully divorced from a social reality or, or a set of expectations and norms, etc. Right, and it's very important to understand the psychological foundations of what's going on. It's just that that isn't enough. And you know, I was one of the last people to be trained in that old Department of Social Relations at Harvard where um, anthropology and social psychology, social anthropology, social psychology, developmental psychology, clinical psych psychology, and, and um, let's see, sociology, social anthropology, clinical psychology, developmental psychology, and clinical psychology, is that five? Um, we had to learn all of those. Uh, and we had to think about how they all fit together. And I think that the faculty were not thinking about that by that time. By the time I was a student there, the faculty had lost interest in each other, but the students were lapping all this up and, and thinking about how all this fit together. And it's unfortunate that we don't have much of that anymore. And I think it would be very, very beneficial if we did. Um, uh, I think he was before your time, but did you overlap all with Clifford Geertz? Oh, I know Clifford Geertz. I knew Clifford Geertz pretty well because um, I spent a year at the Institute for Advanced Study in 1981, 1982, um, and he was there. And I had long conversations with him. He, he was a very lovely man and, of course, a very brilliant man. And I just think his work is inspirational. Does anything... What do you mention Geertz? Uh, I mean, he's probably my single favorite thinker of all time. So. Oh, okay. Well, you you've made a very wise choice there. What what is it of his that you particularly admire? Um. So one. Okay. So here's there's a sociological aspect of it, which is that his work, in my opinion, is the most undervalued work in in terms of what psychologists know about. So speaking of you know different people in different social spheres knowing different things is that if you go ask around psychology departments, what do you know about Clifford Geertz? What do you know about thick description? Um, what do you know uh, about, you know, in interpretation of cultures, local knowledge? There's nothing. Uh, it's not something that's on people's radar. But to me, it's, it's this brilliant idea about, um, so the, the thing that I'm interested in it right now is that uh, so in psychology, you have this notion of 
um, theory of mind, perspective taking, intuitive psychology. And it's this question about when one just normal person off the street tries and understands the perspective of another person off the street. What does that process look like? Um, and psychologists rather egocentrically, rather chauvinistically tend to answer that question of like, well, it looks like psychology. Um, but one of the things that sort of escaped uh, our notice is that there are actually other departments of, of, of the human sciences that are interested in describing behavior. And um, one of those is anthropology. And what anthropology is particularly suited to, at least back in the sort of glory days, um, was describing people who are from a different cultural background than oneself. And that is a problem that it's very difficult for psychologists to deal with because psychology is, in a sense, predicated on the assumption that what we're studying is the mind, and what the mind is is the thing that all humans share in common. So even though we're fascinated by um, you know, cultural differences, like you said, social psychologists exist, um, but um, it's difficult to reconcile that observation with the, um, uh, with the idea of... of, of, of basically uh, what anthropologists are doing when they do ethnography in describing a particular time, particular place, particular cultural milieu and saying here, here are the specifics of it, uh, which are important to describe in addition to the, the general principles. So I think uh, Geertz's notions of thick description and what he thought the project of anthropology should look like actually is how us psychologists should be thinking about how... Um, we go about understanding other people who are different than ourselves, particularly in this, in this notion of intuitive psychology. Well, I think you have an uphill battle to fight because I, I think a lot of psychologists would resist that idea because it, it sounds like it doesn't sound like it has to do with science. Uh, it sounds like it's idiosyncratic, uh, I think, to a lot of psychologists. Um, it's it's uh, about particularities rather than generalities. Don't you think? I mean, do you, do you ever try this out on people? Yep, I'm I'm working on uh, trying it out for sure. Uh, but uh, the the thing that I would uh, sort of say to that is that I think that um, psychology, from its very earliest days of Wundt and 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 those sort of early experimental labs, has always wanted to associate itself with the hard experimental sciences. And this is, this is a deep-seated um, need for psychologists is to be thought of as this really rigorous thing. Yeah, I think they uh, think they've, they've kind of escaped from, you know, Fred Skinner and, and those, those guys, but, but I, I don't think they actually have. Right, no, and so I, there's the, the, even though we don't subscribe to the philosophical tenets of behaviorism, we, the same impulse is there to say, look, we have to, we, I mean, if we have to do something that smacks of scientific rigor. And <laughs> um, um, and then uh, but uh, but uh, and and so you see all these trends in psychology that like I mean the big thing in psychology is right now is is replication right and it's this idea of like well, when you have uh, an experiment if you did that experiment at Harvard if I'm over here at you know Ohio State or whatever. Can I run the same experiment and have it come out with the same um, thing? And I think, um, uh, you know, people in dialing into these um, really important, um, you know, problems in terms of scientific rigor are forsaking 
the what should be the ultimate goal of psychology, which is not to describe human behavior in the lab to replicate experiments or to find uh, the proper significant statistics, but should be to describe the nature of, of what humans are actually doing in their natural habitat of living their lives. Um, and so, yeah, I would actually like to see um, a uh, not I don't think we have to give up the idea of psychology as, as a science, but one of the things that I would like to bring to the table is bringing back a more humanistic perspective on on like saying, hey, let's look at what the actual humans are doing in their actual environment and say something about the specifics of that and what that looks like from a, a you know sort of point of um, interpretation and hermeneutics as much as sci scientists are going to hate that. Um, that sort of framework. But doesn't uh, that go against the grain of most modern cognitive psychology? And that's exactly what I want to do is go against the grain of most the, of, of most modern psychology. I'm actually super influenced by um, the Bayesian cognition, um, you know, sort of literature, which is this idea of, look, we can basically, not only can we reduce all behavior to equations, but one, uh, they all derive from one equation in particular, which is Bayes' rule. And I love that. I absolutely love that. That was one of the things that got me into the game. But everyone understands the value of that. Everyone understands what that brings to the table. And there's a thousand people working on it. What pretty much no one understands fully, in my, in my opinion, is what happens if we try and blow things up again to the, 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 the perspective of, of sort of more qualitative understanding of, of, of human nature. And it's something that actually looks like thin description, because in a sense, computational models are a form of thin description. They are, they are, look, we can ideally we'd be able to give you a number that gives you the answer to what you're looking for. And thick description is the, the total opposite. Of that. I wish you so. could convince some of my students of that. Well, I'm going to work on that. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know uh, how I'll balance the getting tenure thing, and if it'll if it'll work out. But that's the kind of project that I believe. And, in. And I don't think most people would think that Bayesian psychology was humanistic. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I I'm interested in that interplay. You know, I asked you about that a few different times. How do you sort of reconcile the humanistic with the quantitative and the mathematical? So it's definitely a, a longstanding interest in mine, and one that I hope to bring to bear in, um, uh, you know, sort of psychological academic circles. Right. So I don't know if you've had occasion to read my 2017 book, but I am trying to do that there. Um, it's not the thing that I, I defines what the book is about, but I hope I'm doing that. Uh, I, I haven't read it, but I, I certainly uh, will uh, put it on the list because uh, 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 it sounds very interesting from what you've what you've said so far. Well, basically, I'm I'm especially in the chapters on institutions. I'm trying to um, take a kind of view of people as a kind of having using kind of pragmatist epistemology that people are if you if you don't take people into account as, as people who are seriously have some agency trying to solve some kind of problems, um, then you won't really understand where institutions come from. A anyway, that's, I'm not sure how that maps onto what cognitive psychologists are doing these days. Um, there used to be a lot of interest in schemas, although I think that's somehow been pushed to the side, but I think that was starting to go there. Oh, pragmatism in institutions is a super fascinating topic to me right now. Because one of the things that I'm, um, one of the things that one of the problems that I'm concerned with is, if you look at society right now, 
people are very angry about who is governing them and the fact that um, whoever is governing them is not representative of their values, their demographic, whatever you like to describe that. And we see that sort of trend all over the world. Um, and that to me sounds a lot like the problem of having a sense of agency, a sort of pragmatic relationship to the institutions that one is a part of. And so the question then is, how do you structure the institutions such that everyone essentially has buy-in to their legitimacy because they feel that the institutions, to some reasonable extent, are a pragmatic extension of their own beliefs and values, etc.? Yeah, I'm not sure people are, are self-conscious enough to think about it quite that way, but that might be a way to describe how you could explain what they're doing. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about it in terms of that level, not necessarily characterizing the, you know, explicit process that people are, are buying into. But I, I guess trying to make sense of the question of why are people up, why do people view the, the people in charge, um, particularly in government, as illegitimate? And why, uh, and, 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 and sort of looking at the answer in terms of, well, they feel like there is a disconnect between um, the, the ends that they're interested in and the process by which uh, those institutions, um, you know, sort of further them. Right. And there's a bit about that. I have a chapter on norms in my book. There's a bit about that, but it doesn't get very far into it, I guess. Yeah. By the way, before I forget, um, if you're interested in, in Geertz, have you seen the video interviews of him that were filmed shortly before he died? Um, I think I came across them on YouTube one time, but I didn't fully watch them. Why? What What? What stands out to you? Oh, about I just think they're they're so interesting. It's a little, yeah. a little grainy, but it's it's so interesting to hear how he got into anthropology and how he got right. how he ended up in Indonesia and all all this kind of and. and talking about all the people who influenced him, Margaret Mead and Talbot Parsons and so on. He, he did a good deal of sort of autobiographical reflection in a book called uh, Available Light, which has some phenomenal essays in it. Um, one is uh, basically like, this is how I got into anthropology. And this I is didn't realize, I, I know there's a book called After the Fact, which, which where he revisits um, Morocco and Indonesia and the places that he did his field work in to, to see what has happened after all these years. Yep. Um, so he has a later one than that, apparently. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, Available Light is after, after the fact. Um, and I, but I think after the fact is uh, after Works and Lives, which was uh, another one where he talked about his sort of major influences. I think it's um, Mead, Malinowski, um, Levi Strauss, and the fourth one escapes me right now. Oh, okay. Well, I will, I will look for that because I really, I mean, not only was he a lovely man, but his his so his work is so brilliant. I mean, there are there are gaps that I wish he'd filled, but you know, he he couldn't do everything. So some of it is just so brilliant. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what you guys talked about? Like, did you any conversations stand out? Well, I talked to him about what I was working on in, insofar as it was related to, to his work. And, you know, we talked about, and I asked him questions about uh, some of these places, some of these studies he did, and 
because I said, well, I wish we knew this and this and this. And he said, I wish we did too, but I didn't, I didn't find that out. And so, so. <laughs> but it was, you know, oh, that's funny. It's certainly interesting to, yeah. to talk to him about all that stuff. Yeah. I was talking. He was there around the same time. Albert Hirschman was there. It was quite a collection of people there. Oh, I can only imagine. Also the, 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 the Harvard, um, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the department that you were describing back in the sort of heyday of a lot of those science, especially social well. relations, sock rail, as we call it. Um, yep. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, well, this has been super fun to uh, talk. I mean, it's uh, obviously your work is of immense interest to me and pretty much everyone else in, uh, who is interested in, in human behavior and society and all that sort of stuff. So, oh, I just I just finished my first year. This one is your first year. Okay, so you've got a ways to go. Yeah. Uh, is, um, is it okay? You like it there? Yeah. No, it's great. Um, I uh, yeah. No, I, I uh, as 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 you might be able to tell from my interests, I sort of like to go out and see what other people are up to. So you know, I, t I try to take as much as possible from sociologists and anthropologists, and then of course the people who are doing really rigorous. Um, work like the computational cognitive scientists I love and even some you know neuro neurobiological people though it's not as much my favorite but basically trying to look at what all of those people are doing and then come back to my core interests which are, are most closely aligned with social psychology and then say here is what we can steal from the smart people over in the other departments so, and there are people in the department at Oxford who are sympathetic to that um yeah uh, sympathy is not something that there's a, a whole hell of a lot of at, at, at Oxford. It's, it's, it's kind should of I, Should I say tolerant of? Um, it, yeah, I mean, certainly, um, I, I look, I mean, uh, one finds ways of, of, of doing what one is interested in and wants to do. And so, yes, the people that I work with directly are excellent uh, and sympathetic and, and great mentors. Do it. Uh, do I get very jealous though? Very envious when you talk about you know like the glory days of your PhD department and all the different uh, things that were happening there. Yeah, totally. Because it's not. It's not like that. It's not like there's all of this. It's not like you know, that anywhere anymore. I mean, we can't go back. No. So uh, no, I I'm a a little bit of a uh, you know I I look back with a lot of um, envy on on the the, the good old days. Um, that I wasn't around for, but uh, no, I, I that's uh, that, that's kind of how I, I approach it. I do have a, a paper that I uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a rough draft, but basically some of my ideas that I was talking about with um, looking at how to um, uh, apply uh, thick description to the, the you know the idea of perspective taking and that sort of stuff. So okay, well, if you'd like to send a copy my way, I'd be happy to. Take a look at it. I'm curious what you, how you can do that. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a very rough idea, but I'd appreciate any uh, criticism, especially scathing, scathing reviews and, and vehement uh, 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 contradictions. So, right. well, <laughs> I try not to be scathing. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, to do this. I really enjoyed this a lot, and. Um, I'll, uh, I'll read that book. I'll, I'll uh, get back to you uh, on that, and uh, I'll send you that paper too, okay? Okay, great. Cool. All right, well, uh, have a good day, and enjoy the rest of your uh, sunny Northern California afternoon. Thank you. You too, Cody. Bye, Mark. Bye-bye. Right. That was my conversation with Mark Granovetter. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. 
Um, if you want to connect with Mark, well, uh, he doesn't really have Twitter or anything. Uh, so go out and, and, and take a look at his new book. Um, I know the first volume of it is out. That is Society and Economy from 2017. And I believe a second volume is in the works right now, as you heard us talking about that. It sounds phenomenally interesting. Uh, and then if you want to connect with me further, you can uh, look me up on Twitter. You can subscribe to my newsletter, which is available on my website, uh, codycommerce.com newsletter. And, uh, of course, you can subscribe to Cognitive Revolution. And then uh, if uh, you're interested in some of the topics that we were talking about in a professional capacity, um, you know, theory of mind, how do, how do humans understand one another, in, as, as a, you know, sort of psychological academic phenomenon, then you can check out that paper that I wrote recently. Um, it's yet to get quite as many citations as Mark Granovetter's work has, but uh, perhaps it's worth taking a look at anyway. That's called uh, The Intuitive Anthropologist, Why Intuitive Psychology Falls Short for Making Sense of Those Who Are Different. And uh, you can find that as a preprint on Psych Archive, uh, and that's uh, available on uh, my, my website. So anyway, thank you so much for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you back here next week for another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.